Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Everybody, welcome back to Weekly Weights. It's 2020. They promised us flying cars, but you got us instead. I'm Will Berkman. With me today is Alex Hayes, and joining us via Zoom is none other than Mike Teixeira. Mike, do you want to say hello? Hey, everybody. So Mike's obviously extremely well-known as a powerlifting coach. He's the head coach of RTS, but he's also a highly decorated powerlifter. In fact, one of the most decorated powerlifters um, of recent times from the U.S., Mike, do you want to maybe just run over some of your lifting achievements for people who are less familiar with you? Yeah, I guess uh, most of my uh, achievements came from uh, my equip days. Uh, probably the biggest claim to fame there was winning the World Games in 2009. And um, let's see, my best equipped squat was, uh, gosh, I'm going to do terrible with the kilos, but it was uh, 903 pounds and a 644-pound bench. Uh, And then after that, I started getting more into raw lifting, and that was like right when raw lifting was really taking off. Um, It was not present in the IPF, though, but uh, I was there at the first IPF uh, Classic World Cup in 2012 and competed at the Classic Worlds you know, after that until 2015, I think was my last one. And uh, after that, kind of stepped back from competing for a while and focused on coaching. Um, you know, I was usually on the podium uh, at those meets. I uh, had a world record deadlift for a while, uh, which I set down in Auckland, I believe, in 2013. I was actually um, there. Um, yeah? Yeah. I was deadlifting some piddly amount. Um, so (laughs) since, since you were there, (laughs) that I I ended up kind of bummed out about that one a little bit. Uh, so I, I came down, uh, it was like an exhibition type of thing. A deadlift, a deadlift and, uh, set a world record deadlift. And of course, after that, we've got a drug testing. So we go back for drug testing and, uh, I, I don't remember, taken a, an extra long time for drug testing, but I must have, because when I came out, everyone was gone. Like, <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'll find somewhere to go for, to have dinner now. <laughs> that was disappointing. That competition, um, in fact, Eric Helms was there as well. Um, yeah. That same one. And I'm pretty sure his division didn't finish until well after midnight, something like 2 a.m. So I think it yeah. I think it got to the point where stuff had dragged on for so long that nobody was really hanging around for ceremony yeah, for or anything sure. after it was just I, I do remember that that I think that was kind of powerlifting meets were getting bigger rapidly at that time. And I mm-hmm. think there was kind of this uh, a lot of growing pains in terms of how do you organize a competition that doesn't last until midnight, two AM. Because uh, I think there were a lot that were taking a long time around that time. I think since we've kind of figured out how to avoid that or meet directors seem to have figured it out. So. Yeah, for sure. And obviously the caliber of lifters lifting out has improved because I haven't competed in the three lift international since. So, <laughs> so that was that done. Um, 
Mike, the reason we got you on to talk with us today is to cover a little bit about auto regulation, but also to dive into emerging strategies, which is which is a sort of programming system that you've begun to use and maybe popularize. Um, but yeah, first, I guess first cab off the rank is talking about RPA itself. And you were really the person who popularized its use in powerlifting. So um, firstly, can you just, just describe what the RPA system that you use is and also what the purpose of, in your mind, um, using the RPA system was? What problem were you trying to solve? So, let's see. To, if we go back to the 2006, 2005, 2006 timeframe, I was coaching at the Air Force Academy and I had a team of, of people who uh, I was basically responsible for uh, and I'm trying to instruct them on training and things of that nature. And also keep in mind that I was pretty much self-taught on this and I didn't have a, I didn't have a whole lot in the way of mentors or anything like that early on in my career. So here I am. Uh, just trying to figure things out uh, for my team. And I read obsessively and still do read obsessively about powerlifting and strength training. Um, and what I was reading a lot at the time, strong people, uh, effective coaches, people who were willing to talk about training, a lot of times were talking about, hey, it's okay to leave a rep in the tank in training, especially like you're, you know, you're doing your bodybuilding assistance lifts. You don't have to take all those sets to absolute failure, which funny enough, that was kind of the dominant training paradigm at the time. Like people trained to failure because why would you stop a set if you could keep going? <laughs> you know, um, you know, I mean, it turns out there are reasons, but that wasn't well known at the time. Uh, but here you had some, some coaches, some writers, some people popular in the industry who were talking about leaving a rep in the tank. And uh, <clears throat> I remember reading in super training about RPE and how it had its origins in uh, endurance sports and is basically a rating of perceived effort or rating of perceived difficulty. And those two concepts kind of ran into each other. And I thought, yeah, you could train to failure, you could leave a rep in the tank, or you could leave more in reserve than that, you know, and it can be this whole gradient, um, you know, and, and that's a useful way of communicating about set difficulty. If we know that you may not want to take a set to complete muscular failure, uh, what happens if you leave two reps in the tank or what if you leave five reps in the tank, you know, um, and kind of that way of thinking about it. So uh, from there, I just kind of used my experience as an athlete and coach and translated the RPE chart from a vague, more general exercise chart into something that's more relevant for powerlifting, you know, and that's the chart that pretty much the same chart that people see and use today where 10 RPE is max effort, nine RPE is one rep in the tank, you know, and so on down the list. Uh, I would say the main benefits to it, the problems that I, that I see it solving is one, it, it helps for clear communication between an athlete and a coach. 
if you come off of a, a set and you say, that was hard, or man, I really smoked it, that's vague. And language just generally is vague. Uh, so if you say that was a nine RPE or that was an eight RPE, at least I know how you felt about it with a, a, a more of a degree of precision, you know, and we can talk about people's ability or inability to rate accurately, but at least I know what you think of it more than I would have otherwise. Uh, and then since we can quantify the, the degree of effort that allows us um, a way to auto-regulate the effort required. Uh, we see just big ranges in, in potential, uh, rep potential. Uh, we did a project momentum uh, a couple years ago where we had a bunch of people do 80% uh, rep tests. So they would test their 1RMs and then uh, at some point later, they would load 80% and do an AMRAP. And we saw ranges from, I believe, three or four reps on the low end to on the high end, someone got 18 or 19 reps with 80%. You know, so if you're prescribing a percentage-based uh, training system, that's a lot more uh, customization, I think, that needs to happen. And it doesn't really get at the heart of what you want as a coach anyway. So let's say uh, I'm, I'm training you guys and uh, um, we're using a percentage-based system. One lifter scores like four reps at 80% and the other lifter scores 12 reps at 80%. Well, if I, <laughs> so Alex well, scores I, four and I score 12. Yeah. Uh, perfect. That's probably about, that's probably about right. <laughs> yeah, it's actually very close to correct. I think. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> well, so if I prescribe 80% for a triple, even that's a very different experience for the both of you. You know, one person finds that a fairly challenging set and the other person finds it really, really easy. Now, the coach would then need to uh, kind of recalibrate the percentage, you know, then we need to go beyond 80%. I find that most coaches don't do that. And even if you did, you would need to do it for all the lifts, all the assistance lifts, you're, because each one is, is subtly different, you know. Or we could just cut to the chase and say, what I really want you to do is do a triple at an eight RPE and whatever percentage that is. Another factor that's involved there. And so to say that uh, as a coach, you need to customize your percentage chart. That's yeah, that's one thing, but there's more to it than that too. So you score, uh, let's say 12 reps at 80%. That's under one set of conditions. If you are more fatigued uh, or less fatigued, then that score will be different. Even if that 80% is, is pegged to your performance the day. You know, what I'm saying is that, like your reps at 80% generally uh, under, under the same conditions. Yeah. You, you'll probably score 12 or close to 12, but, in different conditions, you'll score different sets, uh, a different number of reps. So an RPE system gets you around that, that if you're training one day and you've got more muscle damage uh, or 
your your heart is a bit more tired than uh, than otherwise. You know that these things will affect your rep performance, and an RPE system basically just accounts for all of that automatically, without uh, without pretending that we can see into the future. Basically, so if I were to sort of sum up some of what you've just said, then it's it gives you a much more elegant way of actually defining the amount of training stress that you want to impose on the athlete. And it yeah. sort of rides the waves of fluctuating preparedness a little bit better than a percentage right. shot necessarily would. Right. The, if I think what, what we want when we do a set is a certain training effect. And I think controlling the RPE and the number of reps gets you much closer to getting the desired effect in a variety of conditions. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still put the right weight on the bar and lift it the right number of times. And however you arrive at that conclusion is fine. You know, your body doesn't necessarily care whether it's an RPE program or a percentage program, as long as the correct training is being done. I just find that it's a lot easier to do the correct training consistently in an RPE format. So, so with the RPE system, I guess, like you've just said, we have this way of sort of ensuring that we're doing about, we're doing like the intended amount of training stress or we're imposing the intended amount of training stress. And when people use things like percentage loads and stuff, they can, they can quantify how much training stress they're giving, but it doesn't really take into account the internal loading on the athlete, what they're experiencing. Um, yeah. But we do often still, if we don't use an RPE system, we might impose week by week load progressions or week by week volume progressions. And one of the, the big challenges that I've found in my own practice in doing that is actually teasing apart whether we're seeing an underlying performance improvement or whether the athletes just lifting more or doing more work because they're trying harder. So yeah. what are some ways that you and your own practice can tease apart the two? The way that we look at it is, uh, you can do a lot of neat stuff once you understand the amount of effort that's being exerted in a, in a given set. So if I know that you lifted hundred kilos for five reps at an eight RPE, then I can gauge with a fair amount of accuracy what your estimated one RM is. And if I can do that, then the next week you do 105 for four reps at a seven and a half RPE we can again translate that into an estimated one RM and those numbers are directly comparable. You know, um, the reps change, the RPE changes, the weight changes, but if we translate it to an estimated one RM, then we have a good understanding of, of the, the level of performance. So that gives us a, this frequent check-in without having to do something more invasive like an AMRAP test. There's nothing wrong with doing an AMRAP test if that's what you want to do in the training. But if you don't necessarily want an AMRAP test for the training effect, you're only doing it to benchmark progress, then you can get that benchmark in other ways, in less invasive ways. And I think you can do that with RPE because if you, it, I think that if you don't even, care to track RPE. I mean, to me, it's just a, a basic component of training. It's like saying, well, I don't want to count my reps. You know, why, why should I bother counting reps? Like 
Well, because you are doing them and they matter, you know, RPE exists, whether you care to pay attention to it or not. And it, it does matter. So even if you're not regulating training based on RPE, and we have circumstances where we don't do that, it's not worth the additional effort. Uh, so we'll use percentages as well. But even if we're doing percentage-based training, we still track the RPE because it's this fundamental part of the training experience that matters to decision-making. I have a question. Um, how can you ensure that your lifters aren't sort of manipulating the RPE within their sheet to ensure that the pro projected max goes up? Like, is that something that you ever run into? Do you like cross-reference with a video or how do you go about that? It's a problem that tends to correct itself. Um, you can do that for a little while maybe, but, but so for the most part, athletes want to get better. Uh, they want to adhere to the program. I, I find that in general, athletes want to do the program that they're assigned. They may go off scripts occasionally. They, the ego gets the best of them and they load a little more weight than they should. But in general, they want to follow the program. So let's say that you prescribe a single at an eight RPE and they want to show progression. I, I'm the same way, I do this as well. I want to show progression. So your default stance is to add a little bit of weight on the bar, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Now let's say that you add a little bit of weight on the bar and it's not an eight RPE, it's an eight and a half RPE. That's not the end of the world. It, it's a little bit more stress. Uh, you would want to rate it accurately. Now, if I lie about my RPE and I call it an eight when it's really an eight, eight and a half, um, the effect of that is the next week you add a little bit more weight and that becomes a, a situation pretty quickly that's not sustainable because you may be able to fudge it a little bit and call an eight and a half, say it's an eight when it's really an eight and a half. But when it's a nine or a nine and a half, you, you can't fudge it anymore. You know, I, I find that most athletes don't want to take it that far. You know, they're not willing to, to go that far with it. And I think a little bit of inaccuracy in your rating, that's okay. It's, it doesn't have to be, you know, to the second decimal place of, of accuracy to be useful. Uh, I think, I think a lot of times we get hung up on, are we accurately rating our RPE? Um, we should strive for accuracy, but there's utility in RPE training um, long before we get to absolute precision in RPE training. Um, I wouldn't mind sort of pursuing this tangent a bit further because something I've observed in my own training as in for myself, not for my clients is in periods where I'm more or less motivated or more or less inclined to train, my tolerance for training difficulty changes enormously as well. And so what I might call an RPE eight set in the weeks that I'm least motivated, I might call an RPE six or seven in the ones where I'm most motivated, partly because I literally don't want to try as hard, but also because my body's feeling less switched on. Mm -hmm. In your practice coaching people who are giving you these subjective experiences, how do you tie in those factors as well? I think it's, it's maybe even beneficial to have that as part of the rating. 
you know, and that's why I, I do think that RPE is fundamentally different from reps and reserve. So the reps and reserve scale is, uh, is what you see in scientific literature. It's uh, a more rigid scale. Um, so reps and reserve is, is much more strictly, you know, one rep in reserve, two reps in reserve and so on. Uh, whereas RPE matches up quite closely to that in most cases, but there are edge cases that get blurry and there's a little bit more room for things like perception. And, um, you know, that's why I say, like, if you say it's an eight RPE, I know that that's an eight R that's how you perceive it is an eight RPE. Now, whether it's literally two reps in reserve or not, uh, most of the time it's close to that. And that's the important thing. Uh, I, again, I don't think you need, you know, extreme amounts of precision in order for this to be useful. Uh, so if you have a period where you're less motivated and that affects your ratings, then I think that's all right. And that's important for me to, to know and understand. Now, what do we do about that is maybe a different question. You know, maybe we should, uh, push things a bit harder or make things a bit easier. I'm, I'm not sure which, uh, during those periods of, of less motivation, maybe we should get away from regulating based on RPE or maybe not, you know, that, that might be an essential part of your training experience. You know, what, what happens if you say, well, these times where you're less motivated, you know, and, and you're overrating, you know, it's really, uh, it moves like an eight RPE, but you really called it a nine, you know? So what do you do about that? You just stop using RPE training and you're going to prescribe a, a percentage at that point. Um, that makes you work harder. Uh, but that has a cost that has a cost in terms of recovery. That has a cost in terms of stress and motivation. Uh, and that may not be good for you long-term. So I think, there's a difference between your perception of that set and what you should do about it. You know, it kind of goes back to the, the John bros quote that everyone uh, was throwing around a few years ago, how you feel is a lie. I, I always bristle at that a little bit. Like I see what he's getting at, but it's not that how it's not that what you feel is a lie. It's not that your, your feelings are a lie. Your you know, something along those lines. It's, it's not that the way you feel is, is real. It's just that your interpretation of what those feelings mean is sometimes wrong, mm. you know? So if you do a set and perceive it as an RPE eight, uh, and, but it moves more like a, a seven or a six. Okay. That's still your perception. Now, what should you do about that? That's a bit of a different question, you know? it might be the case that you shouldn't just pursue programming as normal during periods of training like that. Uh, there may be some other programming consideration that needs to be made. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think, um, what you spoke about the idea of how perception and reps and reserve aren't the same thing that is in the literature. And I think it's a paper that Eric Helms wrote where I found this, they were talking about, um, are talking about people rating RPE of taking a set to failure. You're probably familiar with this and people using submaximal loads in some instances were 
hitting a set to failure and saying it was like an RPE 8. It wasn't that hard. But like by definition, it's an RPE 10. They couldn't have worked any harder, right? They've already yeah. gone to failure, but they've perceived other things as being harder. So without that anchor of muscular failure as being what an RPE 10 is, they're saying training's not that hard. And by the same token, I have a couple of clients who started training with me who've got no background in any physical activity or sports, have never done anything that's remotely hard. And they do sets where their last rep hasn't even slowed down remotely. And to them, it's unbelievably difficult. And they tell me, wow, that was so hard. Like I couldn't have possibly done much more. And I go, if I put a gun to your head, I reckon you could have. But their perception of what they were doing is much, much, is much, much different from my perception in watching them as much, much different from, I dare say, yours would be had you done that same set. And I'm like, I'm willing to believe that that does matter for the training effect or the training experience for people, for their perceptions of difficulty to align with what they're doing in training. So that's absolutely true. Well, I will, from from a muscle physiology standpoint, there are things occurring and that we want to occur in the muscle Uh, that only happen as a set approaches failure, regardless of your perception of it. And I do find that people have this experience uh, of wildly inaccurate RPE ratings, even experienced lifters, if they're doing a movement that they've never done before. Um, One of my favorites is, you know, put someone on a, a new chest supported row machine that they're not really familiar with, you know, and you start loading weights and, and unless they are familiar with rowing in general, uh, pretty, pretty familiar with rowing in general, then their perceptions of their RPE may be quite a bit off, surprisingly off. Uh, so what I like to do in situations like that, will work up, say normally you may want to do, uh, you know, 12 reps at a, a nine RPE as a top set, you know, so we'll work up to whatever they think that that would be. And then the last set will AMRAP or close to AMRAP. Uh, and they find that they, you know, instead of 12 reps at a nine RPE, they got 17 or 18 reps, you know? So obviously their perception was quite a bit off in that situation, but that AMRAP set serves as a really great benchmark for what high effort feels like in this, in this movement. Now, if you've got someone who's really novice at physical training, it's going to take more than one set for that benchmark to take hold. But if you're experienced in lifting weights, then, you know, it might only take one or two of those types of benchmark sets. Now, again, there's a cost to everything. So yeah, there's a cost to that, but it's, it's one high effort set that you were planning on doing anyway. It just happened to be 17, 18 reps instead of 12, you know, for sure. Let's dive back towards the itinerary. Um, and we were talking about teasing apart, um, teasing apart progression, actual progression in performance from just progression in load. And you said that RPE is a really good way to do that because from that we can sort of titrate estimated one RMs and see what's happening. When we're coaching athletes, what types of measures should we be looking for before we you know, make changes to the amount of training stress that we're imposing upon them if we think that they're not improving? I like to uh, drive changes in training stress uh, as almost a last resort. Um, I like to explore uh, different movements 
different intensities. I like to do all of that first. If you increase the volume, increase the training stress, um, those aren't completely synonymous, but if we're, let's think of it like uh, increasing your number of working sets. Um, if you drive up that total training stress number, it's hard to go back. You know, so if you go from, uh, let's say, you know, 15 hard sets to 18 hard sets in a given week, uh, it's hard then to go back to 15 and, and have that be anything like productive. Uh, so before I move from 15 to you know, 16, 17, 18, uh, I want to make sure that we've done everything we can at the 15 level to maximize, maximize our adaptation from that. Um, now, if you're doing 15 hard sets a week, your recovery is good. You know, you're, you're, you feel physically good. You're not experiencing a lot of, um, damage or, or after effects from training, uh, you're not progressing and you've tried a variety of different training strategies and they're not moving your lifts forward, then yeah, you've got to increase the training stress, or at least that's an avenue worth considering. So you mentioned exhausting all of your options at that 15 set mark. What are all of your options at that point? Well, that's a good question. And, uh, I think it depends on how creative you want to be as a coach. Uh, there are a lot of different exercises that you can try that are going to place more or less stress on certain parts of the movement, uh, certain skills that are required to complete the movement, um, different intensities that you can try different people respond to different intensity zones, you know, and I've talked about that quite a bit uh, in the past that some people do really well with high intensity work and then other people don't at all. Some people do really well with medium or low, you know, all, all different kinds. So figuring that out, figuring out what kind of lifter are you, what do you respond best to? That's, essential, you know, that's an essential part of the equation. Now, if you figured that out and you say, okay, I typically respond really great to high intensities. Uh, and I've tried, you know, most, most different exercises that I can think of that, that have a reasonable degree of, you know, reasonable chance of working, you know, you wouldn't exhaust all possibilities or anything, but you, you use your judgment in terms of what's likely to have a carryover, you know, and if, if it's not, if it's not happening, then yeah, you've got to ratchet up the, the training stress, but that's kind of my default workflow is to try as much stuff as we reasonably can before just resorting to an increase in loading. Something that I've, something that I've definitely seen that ties in with that is certain lifters. If you just change the distribution of a given amount of work, it can still make a really large difference in how things go. So like, you know, if you're doing say 10 sets of squats across a week, five sets twice isn't the same thing as, you know, four sets twice and two sets once or eight sets once right. and two sets once. And, you know, 10 sets where they're two sets of like two fives that are moderately hard is not the same as five really hard sets and five really easy sets. Mm -hmm. Um, and things like that seem to matter a lot. And especially they seem to matter a lot when you start considering how they sit in the program relative to other lifts and things like that. It's this amazingly dynamic 
this dynamic system when we write a training program. And it's something that something that sometimes frustrates me when people's default adjustment is to just say, well, fuck, like, let's just do more. Um, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it can often work if you're like doing nothing, but very often you look at someone's program and you go, man, like this doesn't seem to make a heap of sense on paper or it looks like you could tighten it up a little before we start to do more. And so mm-hmm. like you, I'm a tiny bit reticent to just throw heaps and heaps more at people. If I'm like, Hey, you're actually doing quite a lot already. Right. No, I fully agree with you that I think we kind of saw that, you know, in probably the 2014, th- let's say 13 to 16 timeframe. That was kind of a really popular training paradigm was like volume equals gains. So do the volume and people were just driving as much volume as they can and pushing frequency as, as high as it would go. And you still see some, some kind of bastions of uh, people holding on to that training paradigm. And I think for valid reason, I think it does work uh, and it works for a lot of people. The problem is, and, and we saw this then is that it beats the hell out of people. You know, it, you, there's a limit to how far you can push the volume. Uh, there's a practical limit, uh, a physical limit um, that, that comes into place. And again, I think it's difficult to go back, you know? So if you're, if you're doing four, four hour workouts a week or five, you know, five, three or four hour workouts a week, where do you go from there? <laughs> you know, like you're dedicating this huge amount of time that you may not, it may not be sustainable. Uh, physically or mentally Uh, and then you know when that stops working what next yeah and when you say when you say that higher volumes drive adaptation because we're all lifting weights there's that element of machismo people just think oh well like if more is better than the most is the best rather than like the most that I can do well is probably probably pretty good you know well and let's take this take this back though and make sure that I'm not making a caricature of it. So if you look at people who run that volume strategy well, uh, and I'm thinking of, of like the strength guys, they take that volume strategy and, and they do it well. It's not constant, ever increasing driving up training volume, or at least my perception of it is, is that it's not ever increasing, ever ratcheting up training volumes it's using training volume to, to drive progress. Um, but you've got to have a fairly patient view of what counts for progress. And if you're just increasing the volume in every block, that's going to run out of road rapidly. It takes time to adapt to increases in workload and you've got to allow the, the time for those adaptations to happen. So I'd like to invite you if you want to slag off on anyone right now. I got to admit, I have, <laughs> I have an ulterior motive for this whole podcast. I was speaking to your client, Liz Craven today, and she yeah. said that if we get you sufficiently angry, that you'll get a bit sweary on the podcast. <laughs> and I've heard you in a couple of appearances and I don't think you ever once uttered a curse word. So over the, <laughs> over the next 40 minutes, we're just going to try and really rile you up. Yeah, it, it can happen. <laughs> also, I have a message from Liz. She says, Mike, I'm tired. What? 
Might be the volume, Mike. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, Liz is my go-to example. And like when I give seminars and talk about just how different training programs can be, um, it's been a couple of years ago now, but we, when we were really pushing, um, kind of exploring some different strategies for Liz's training, uh, at one point she was doing, it was like two microcycles a week and the stress index was like a 30, which may not mean anything if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but it's roughly double what normal people, like normal well-trained volume tolerant powerlifters do. It's like double that. And I got almost no complaints from her ever about any of that. So, uh, and I mean, eventually it was like, look, I'm spending a ridiculous amount of time in the gym. We ought to back off of this. And so we did. And, and what she's doing now is much more normal. I would say much more, it's, it's closer to a, a typical, uh, program. Um, which kind of makes me roll my eyes a little bit when she says she's tired from this, then what, what happened when we were doing that 30, you know, well, to be fair, she mightn't have complained <laughs> to you, but in person, she's a very angry lady. And I'm wondering yeah. if maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just pent up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so we've, we've covered this concept of, of basically trying to establish how much training stress we're imposing on people. And we've more or less agreed that RPE seems to be the best tool to do that. Um, how does that then tie into this concept of emerging strategies? What's the idea of that for training? So the, the idea behind emerging strategies is, is just kind of taking this concept of individualizing training as far as we can take it. Uh, we know that people respond differently to different training interventions. So how do we go about finding what works best? There are, everyone seems to know intuitively uh, that you need something like a customized program, a program that's tailored to fit your needs and that the best program for you is different from the best program for someone else and and so on. Um, But what I found always lacking was a systematic way of figuring out what's best. To me, it always seemed like it was reliant on a coach or someone to just make some genius observation. Um, And I was never terribly comfortable with that. Uh, So when this concept of bottom-up training and that being a a window uh, that lets us see what what an athlete responds best to, uh, when that came along, I, I mean, it was it's an obvious solution to the problem. So I I wanted to, to implement that and it was, you know, more successful than I thought it would be and more useful too. So what it's turned into has been this system for individualizing training and you can teach other people to do this. Whereas before it's like, well, you, you just need this vast quantity of coaching experience and then, you know, you hopefully connect some dots in your subconscious that allows you to make some observation for optimal training pl- program design uh, that are just not available to other people. Well, there are ways of getting at these observations if we're just a little bit more controlled in how we go about doing it. 
I mean, so, I think there's some other things going on there too, uh, as far as periodization paradigms, but, but that's the main driver. Something interesting that, um, I think Greg Knuckles said this on another podcast. Um, he's, he sort of said, if you were to start with a reasonably well-established training program of your choice, you know, so say you started with a Shaco template and you ran it until it was not working, you know, you're pretty hard stalled. And then you made a couple of tweaks on, you know, on the basis of what you thought was likely to work based on how you were responding to your prior training. And you did that over and over and over again, you might arrive at some type of a training program that's pretty highly individualized. But the second thing that he said there was that if you got the same individuals and you started them on two completely diametrically opposed systems, so say one was Westside and one was Shaco, and they ran them till they stopped working and they made those same tweaks, there's nearly no chance that they would arrive at the same training program. And what I suspect is that, and this is definitely something that, that I'm guilty of in my own coaching practice. What I, what I suspect is if you start from a given set of assumptions about what training people should do, and then only adjust from there rather than starting from no assumptions, you still limit your end point and you might get training that's highly effective, but it won't necessarily be optimal if that exists. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I fully agree that the, the starting point matters a lot when we're talking about something like this. And to that end, regardless of the system being used, whether we're doing emerging strategies or not, uh, that's something that I think about often. Um, you know, I, I say I get a new client and you have to start somewhere. So you start with your assumptions, really you start with your assumptions and biases as a coach, because what you get in terms of training history and quality information out of the athlete is really pretty small. Uh, even, even people that do a good job of keeping track of their training and, and have a decent understanding of their training, it's a lot better in those situations, but it's still, you, you're still going on a really low resolution picture most of the time. Um, so you are injecting a lot of your biases and assumptions so that you can fill in the rest of the, the training program. It's like, uh, it's like Jurassic Park, right? Like when they, they extract the, the DNA from the, the mosquitoes, but mm. the mosquitoes have all these the holes in the DNA code, so they fill in the holes with the DNA from the frog so they get you know, a complete DNA sequence. It's kind of like talking that. Jurassic Park four at this point, aren't you? Or is that no, no, like the original, that... the original Jurassic. So I've got a, a five-year-old, and uh, so probably not my most brilliant parenting move, but we watched <laughs> Jurassic Park recently, so that's why this is top of mind for me. <laughs> you can go for. Do you remember walking with dinosaurs on BBC? Do you have that? Oh yeah, yeah. We ought to dig that up. My son loves dinosaurs. <laughs> and that stuff, like I loved that stuff as a kid. That's how my parents would babysit me when they had to do things. They'd just <laughs> leave me the walking with dinosaurs VHS set and say, "Go watch that." So there you go. Yeah, yeah it might be a bit more family friendly than seeing people get eaten on the toilet and stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll try and. I'll try and drag us away from dinosaurs and towards emerging strategies. <laughs> so, so we've got this idea where we're trying to prescribe training based off of what works for an individual. Mm -hmm. So in a practical sense, what does that look like? We've got somebody there 12 or 16 weeks out from a comp. You've been coaching them for you know a year or two. So you've got a, 
got a whole lot of observations about their training. Where do we start and what do we do? Well, that's, that's kind of the, the crescendo. Like it, we're kind of cutting straight to the crescendo at that point, no, because if we have a lot of training, up. no, that's, that's fine. If we have a lot of, uh, observations about what works for this lifter. We can go back through all of those observations. Uh, so we codify all this in block reviews. At the end of each block, we have a report that we run on, on each block called a block review. And that tells us what the nature of the training was and, and how well it worked. So at this point, you're 12 or 16 weeks out from competing. We want to go back through all these block reviews and pull out the, the most effective blocks and say, what do all these have in common? You know, and we can also do a, another report called a meta block review that doesn't just analyze the, the best blocks, it analyzes all the blocks and says, you know, on the average, every time you do uh, pin squat, your gain rate is better than when you don't do pin squat. You know, uh, it's better than the average. So uh, we can pull our best our best blocks, find these commonalities, and basically replay greatest hits in the last one or two blocks leading into a competition. It's training that's the length of the block is tailored to fit the athlete. The contents of the block are, is tailored to fit the athlete. It's stuff that we have a, a record of producing high results in this specific lifter. Uh, so in terms of reliable peaking, uh, reliable development, um, I think that's, that's the way to go. So, so to give you a more concrete example, you mentioned pin squats. So mm -hmm. say when you include pin squats in your training, your squat tends to improve over the course of the block over your prior blocks. You've established a time frame for which it seems to be effective in a row. So say it's, you get five weeks ish of improvement um, in a, in a squat block before things start to taper off. And is there some qualitative training information as well? Like you might say the pin squats are most effective at a given intensity. Yeah. Yeah. You can do that as well. Um, and you'll be able to tell that fairly easily from the block reviews, uh, that pin squats are present and I typically train them in the five rep range. So if it's time for replaying greatest hits, then you do pin squats in the five rep range. If you're exploring, you know, or maybe further, a little bit further away from competition, um, you may say, I wonder if, if doing pin squats for triples is just as effective, you know? So that's something that's a new territory that you can explore, or you may not do pin squats at all. It may be something else entirely. So yeah, the, the, the length of the block is pinned to how long, uh, the competition lifts are responsive to, to that block. And so, uh, I, oh, sorry, you carry on. Well, I was just going to say that um, it almost doesn't matter what the, uh, the other movements are doing during that block, as long as the competition exercise is improving. So theoretically, if the competition squat is going up, but the pin squat is going down, uh, that's, that's still okay. I've never actually seen that happen, but you know, theoretically we want to keep the goal, the goal. And the goal is for the competition squat to improve. 
And so you said that it doesn't matter, you know, if pin squat fives are the most effective way to program them, then we do pin squat fives. So for people who are listening to this, who are completely unfamiliar with the concept, peaking with emerging strategies, would it sometimes resemble almost doing a very normal training week right up until the competition without, without as much of a taper? Sure. Well, maybe I should back up and kind of do a, a, a quick overview of what a training experience with emerging strategies might be like. Uh, so let's say that, that you and I just start working together and uh, I'm going to implement this emerging strategies concept. So we take the training history, I build a training block, a development cycle that I think will work. Now, what that looks like is one training week. And I give you this training week and you repeat it over and over. So the same exercises, the same sets, the same reps, and the same RPE. Now the RPE component is pretty important because that allows the weight on the bar to fluctuate a little bit up and down based on your performance. We expect you to get stronger during the course of a development cycle. So we want to allow space for the weight on the bar to go up a little bit. Um, that's, that's important. Uh, so you repeat this training week over and over. Uh, the only differences are small adjustments to the bar weight. Uh, and as you go through this process, we're monitoring your performance specifically for the competition exercises. And we see one of three different response types. So a type one response is just straight improvement. Week two is better than week one, and every week is just some measure of improvement. A type two response is an initial dip in performance early on, followed by a pretty consistent increase. And a type three response looks like relative stagnation in the first part of the block followed by a rapid increase at the end. Uh, type one's the most fun followed by type two and then type three is really not that fun. But the point is that you get to this peak condition. Now, nothing works forever. And let's say that you are carrying on this uh, development cycle, repeating the same training week, and it's mostly a type one response. So each week is this improvement. Now, that doesn't happen forever. At some point, it peaks. At some point, there's no more improvement to be gained from this stimulus. And when that happens, we're, we're looking for a signal that you've reached this peak condition. So in the first block, we're looking for two weeks of reduced performance. If we get two consecutive weeks of reduced performance, then we say, okay, that's likely the end. You know? And so we measure that amount of time from the beginning of the block to the peak performance. And let's say for you, that's five weeks. Now it could be three weeks. It could be eight weeks or 10 weeks or anywhere in between. Uh, but let's say for you, it's five. What we'll do, uh, we find that that five week time frame is relatively stable. So we'll use that for planning in future training blocks. Uh, so at that point, we would do a pivot block. And for now, let's think of a pivot like a, like a deload. Uh, the training loads are reduced. The stress is reduced. Everything is different, different exercises, different structure to the training week and so on. It's like a reset. So everything's almost. different. What's that? It's like a reset almost. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So we're allowing things to, in fact, we used to call it a washout, but uh, in the sense that we're allowing the previous development cycle to wash out. Uh, but we changed the name because people kind of associated washout with like failing. Like if you washed out of a, a university or something like that. So it's you like know, a, it's not, like a palate cleanser when you go to a nice restaurant and they give you like yes. one of those things to eat. Yeah. While we're on this, how long can the lead in be for a type three response? Cause I think I've been type threeing for nearly two years at the moment. I'm, just <laughs> waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting for a little uptick. Yeah. Yeah. Type three is really, really not fun. Um, it's coming, man. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, I won't hold my breath. Yeah. Right. Go on, Mike. So you have your pivot block. Yeah. So you've got your pivot and the pivot is roughly a third, the length of the development block. So we said in the example that your development block was five weeks. Uh, so the pivot's going to be one. It could be two, depending on how you're responding to it. Cause it's right on that, right on that line. Uh, so I would be looking at one or two weeks for the pivot in, in that particular case. Uh, and then from there you would follow it with another development cycle. And the second development cycle will be very different from the first. So the competition exercise would have be trained with different intensity. Um, we would select different developmental or preparatory exercises as well. Um, you may change training strategies depending on, you know, where you were going with things and you kind of repeat this development pivot development pivot development pivot pattern and there's two broad categories of development cycle that you can do there's a exploring development cycle which is where basically you're trying new things and you always try things that you think will work right no one wants to try a development cycle that they expect to fail uh, so you try things that you think will work uh, and then the second type of development cycle is a focused development cycle. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where you review the, you pull all the block reviews and you replay your greatest hits. Uh, and that's more for going into a uh, competition setting. And then kind of back to, back to your point, uh, what it's like to go into a competition from this is, is we say, all right, if you're five weeks to your peak condition, and we know that reliably, then that fifth exposure is, is a, a predictably high performance. That's your peak performance. If we do other things like taper weeks and things like that, then that's injecting something different into the training process, and we may not get that predictably high performance. So we try to keep things as consistent as possible and roll into the competition doing basically a normal training week. Uh, we may just rest for the last two or three days prior to competing just to remove any, you know, extreme amounts of fatigue that you've got. But keep in mind that every other development cycle that you do, that fifth exposure is a predictably high performance, whether you're fatigued or not fatigued or anything like that. So whether you feel good or feel bad, isn't necessarily the most important thing. The most important thing is that you perform well. And that's what John Bros said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, at that point, I think I would agree. You know, it, it's just the interpretation of the signal, right? It's, it may be important that you feel bad, but the time to do something about it is not immediately prior to competing. 
For sure. So when you, when you get lifters and run them through this system, do you find that lifters are internally consistent? Do they have like, do they need similar loading patterns and have similar times to peak for each lift? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a really common question with this is, is, um, um, what happens if lifts peak like in different times, you know, what if your squat is squat and bench are five weeks to peak, but deadlift is three. Um, I haven't seen a case where that seems to be, you know, kind of a problem that sticks around. Occasionally what you'll find is that let's say your squat and deadlift are six weeks to peak and it might look like your bench peaked at in week three. Now that could be a couple different things. It might be that you kind of had a, a, we designed the program with some flaw in it. Either the program didn't work very well and it just didn't drive any improvement to the bench. Uh, or maybe there were too many exposures. So kind of a, a core idea here is that the time to peak is linked more to the number of exposures than it is the actual time. Now I've been talking about time to peak in, in number of weeks because that's an easy way to wrap our head around it. But really what we're talking about, we have one training week that repeats, right? In, instead of five weeks to peak, a more proper way to, to say it would be five exposures. It's five exposures to peak, five exposures to this stimulus, this microcycle stimulus. It, think of the, the training microcycle as one package of stimulus. And after five exposures, you've kind of maximized your adaptation to it and need to change to a different uh, microcycle. If we design the microcycle to, to take less time, you may, uh, you can design it so that you get through two microcycles in a given week. Um, it, the way that looks is that kind of like an A workout and a B workout. So if you train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, maybe your Monday and your Thursday are exactly the same workout. Your Tuesday and your Friday are exactly the same workout. So that's two exposures to a microcycle in a given week. Now, if you have something that's kind of more like that, you expect to get through those five exposures in less time. So if you're five exposures to peak and you're doing a two X frequency, you're going to get through those five exposures in two and a half weeks, you know, or you can go the other way and have a, a stimulus that only repeats every two weeks. And that takes a lot longer to get through uh, your five exposures, you know, so in the case of uh, you've got a, a squat and deadlift that peak in five weeks, and then it looks like your bench peaked in three. Well, it could be that the way you wrote the program had bench press on Monday and then touch and go bench press for a really similar intensity on Thursday. Well, is that the same exposure? I mean, it, for most people, it seems pretty close. You know, it, it may not look like it on paper, uh, but 
this is kind of a, a blurry area in the concept because it's not like there's some physiological mechanism in your, in your muscle fiber that's counting exposures. That's not a thing. It's just that exposures is a, is a reasonable heuristic. It seems like an effective heuristic for gauging this adaptation process. And if we kind of meddle with that in some way, then uh, the way that we count exposures may not match up to that adaptation process. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm following you. So okay. it's the, each time, each time you have an exposure, each time you train, you're subjecting yourself to a given amount of training stress. And there's only so many times that that training stress can be imparted upon your muscles and continue to spur the adaptation before you need a washout. You need some time where that, where you're removed from that exposure to resensitize or refresh or get something that is qualitatively different. Um, before you can actually productively adapt to it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you said, you said that the time to peak for each lift or at least the number of exposures to peak might um, or would normally be quite similar if everything's working quite well. What about the loading pattern? So the lifts typically consistent within a lifter or not? How do you mean? So say like, do you, do you see athletes where the squat bench and deadlift all seem to respond to high intensity. They're just a high intensity athlete. Or do you more typically see athletes where, you know, two lifts respond to high intensity and one responds to lower intensity and higher volumes and things like that? I'd say it's a mixed bag that, um, 50, 50, <laughs> you know, lots of people do seem to have a, uh, uh, consistent intensity that they respond to, but then maybe the other half of people, will have lifts that are different. Um, I, I wonder if it's just kind of the way that we think about it or, or what, but it seems like usually either the bench or the deadlift will be the outlier. Um, either, you know, the bench needs, you know, and it's not ever one thing. Like people, I've heard a lot before, like, well, bench needs more intensity, deadlift needs less intensity. I haven't seen that to be, uh, true enough to generalize it, to be honest. I've seen plenty of people that need low, more rep work in the bench. Uh, I will say that, you know, lower intensity in the deadlift probably is a reasonable uh, assumption to make, you know, relative to the squat, let's say. Uh, I haven't seen too many people that need more intensity in the deadlift than they do in, say, the squat. Um, but the bench in particular seems like one of those lifts where um, it could be high intensity, uh, it could be low intensity. Uh, it's, it would be difficult to generalize. So I think we should start wrapping this conversation up because there's been so much really interesting information already. I think some people might almost be overwhelmed. Um, the concept of emerging strategies and the concept of using RPA to gauge training stress is is very sound but for people who for people who are using other training systems or who are you know who use more percentage-based trainings or prescribed loads what are some ways that you think that they could take the lessons that you've gotten from using these systems and improve their own practice so as far as rpe i think you just start by rating it 
you don't have to do anything with it. Just rate it. And what to do with it will kind of emerge on its own as you learn. You'll notice something at some point, like I'm supposed to do 85% for a triple, and that's always seven RPE for me. But today it's been like a six RPE. I wonder if I should increase the weight. And at the point where you start having that thought, then yeah, you should increase the weight. You know, then you're comfortable enough with it to start making decisions based on it. But I would start just by rating it. Uh, and as far as the emerging strategy stuff goes, if you're not sold on the concept and you don't want, you know, a full scale paradigm shift, start by reducing the variation, like the week to week variation in training. Keep your reps more consistent. Keep your exercise selection consistent for longer periods of time. One thing that I did for years uh, was every week the training was different. And I think a lot of us kind of pride ourselves almost on, you know, no two weeks of training being exactly the same, uh, that that's some mark of a customized approach or an individualized approach. But I don't think it's necessary. And, and I think there's good reason to not do it, that if you keep training more consistent, it reduces the amount of noise in your data. So it makes it more easy to see, yes, I'm responding well to high intensity in the bench. If the rep schemes are all over the place, there's a lot of variety. Uh, you're always switching it up. Um, I'm sure you can think of good reasons for doing that, but I'm, I can tell you that those reasons are not as important as figuring out the ideal uh, training intervention for an individual athlete. Alex, you want any further questions? No, that was good. Yeah, that was terrific. Thank you so much, Mike. We're going to take a very quick break and we'll get you back on for the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Sounds good. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. This is episode 86 with Mike Teixeira. And we're going to ask Mike the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. So question one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Hmm. See, this is one of those questions where if I, uh, if, if this is like going to get written down somewhere and when the technology actually exists to do this, like you're going to hold me to this, I'd want to like spend a lot of time on it and think about the answer. But uh, at the Don't moment... Don't underestimate us where... <laughs> we're probably in the top 50 biggest fitness podcasts in australia so when the technology's out <laughs> right right you know, yeah we'll this is it. this is a binding this is a binding uh podcast i think you know yeah, absolutely um at the moment uh and it's because here i'll i'll do this it's because i picked up a, an old school book that uh just yesterday that yeah. i didn't have in my library from uh fred hatfield so if, uh, if you were going to ask me right at this moment, I'd say Fred Hatfield. I had I got to have lunch with him once, and it was really, really interesting, uh, enlightening in some kind of unexpected ways. So I would say Fred Hatfield would be my pick. Fred Hatfield, so Dr. Squat for the people who, who maybe are less familiar 
also one of the most thoughtful powerlifters and powerlifting trainers ever. What was it that was so interesting about talking to him? Well, I mean, talk about a guy who, who lived this, you know, like he was a, he was a gymnast. He was a weightlifter kind of back in the, the early days. But then uh, when he really dedicated himself to powerlifting, uh, he was American and uh, he was kind of at his peak in powerlifting in the eighties. And that's during the cold war. Uh, he believed that the training that they were conducting in the Soviet union was the most advanced training and that they had something useful to, to teach. So he managed to, to get a contact there and went and lived in Russia, uh, attended the sports school in Russia. Uh, I think in a different environment, got a PhD, uh, I believe in exercise science or something like that. This was back when that was a lot less common of a thing to do, you know, back in the eighties and applied those lessons and, uh, applied everything that he had learned. Uh, he ended up squatting at, I want to say it was like a thousand, 1014 for sure. And he might've done more than that. Um, and, uh, was a founder of the ISSA, uh, like a, a training certification in the States written uh, a bunch of different books. And I mean, I mean, he, he had a scientific mind, but as you might expect, a lot of the things that we thought we knew in the 80s, uh, we've discovered are factually not quite 100% on track now. But one thing that I think is interesting about people from that era is that even if the, the facts are not, even if the narrative explanation behind a thing isn't 100% correct, the observation is usually pretty close. You know, so I think you can learn a lot of what to do. And if you don't put your full weight on the reasons why to do it, I think you're still kind of on, in some quality territory. It's a great answer. Yeah, super cool. Very good. Much less umming than you said that you might give us as well. Well, that's only the first question. <laughs> I don't think you might have listened. You've listened to a few episodes, haven't you? He's generally have, prepared. Yeah. He does follow me on, on Instagram. Oh, he doesn't follow me yet, but that'll change. <laughs> Um, <laughs> please. <laughs> All right, Will's, Will's going to bully you after the podcast. Um, question two is who's your favorite athlete of all time? And this could be any sport. It doesn't have to be powerlifting. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a powerlifter through and through, so it has to be a powerlifter. Uh, favorite powerlifter of all time. I guess I'm going to go see, see now we're veering off into maybe a little more of a boring answer because I guess I've got to go with, with Fred Hatfield again. He's a, a lot like me in the sense that he was a heavier lifter. Uh, he's a extremely strong lifter. I mean, he squatted more than, than I have. Uh, but he was also thoughtful, uh, applied his mind to his training and uh, lived it as best he like to the maximum that he could to, to reach his goals. And, and I think that's really cool. So at the moment I'm going to, going to go with Fred. So you, you said he squatted 10, 14, is that what you said? Yeah. That's about 460, 462 and a half, something like that. Yeah. And this would have been in Was like, that in gear. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the early stages as well. So, I mean, it's it's a squat suit, but it's not the same as a squat suit now. It's I mean, knee wraps, but knee not wraps the same there. as knee wraps now. So, it's just, the the generations of things are a bit different. Um, but it was but, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Did did Fred do that exhibition squat off with Tom Platts? Was that him? He did. He did. Yeah. That's so that was uh, that's a very cool thing. So they did. Um, 500 pounds for reps and I believe a max squat. And I forget what Fred scored with the 500, but Tom Platts did something like 23 reps or something, <laughs> something insane. And then Fred squatted in the 800s for a max. And I mean, of course, Tom Platts wasn't, wasn't anywhere near there. Um, but it kind of, became a, a very uh, salient example of uh, specificity. You know, Fred is, is trained and developed to do a max and Tom Platts had trained very differently. So, um, you know, you, you get what you practice at. Okay. Bonus question. Have you ever done Hatfield squats? In what, in the sense of like holding onto the rack while you have the, the yeah, you have the safety, safety bar on and hold the rack and squat like bolt upright. Have you ever done them? No, no, I haven't. Maybe I should. Okay. There's no follow up to that. That was just question <laughs> two. <laughs> All right. Question three, which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh, resemble. Could be personality or, yeah, we'll or give appearance, whatever. Matt Gary had a quick answer to this. Yeah, so Matt Gary is convinced that he <laughs> looks. <laughs> Matt Gary is convinced he looks like The Rock, <laughs> um, and he, he has a picture on his phone that he sent us of of where he thinks he most looks like The Rock, and he sent it to yeah. us by email five minutes after we finished recording the episode to prove his <laughs> bona fides. But <laughs> gosh, I don't know, man. I I don't watch enough tv to to have a quality answer here but look i'll i'll kind of do the politician thing and and uh you ask a question and not, instead i'll answer the question that i want to answer <laughs> <laughs> did you know that they're making a sequel to top gun i that did it's coming out this summer yeah i'm i'm unreasonably excited about it Okay. Like, <laughs> that was a movie that like really shaped my early childhood. Well, more than that, I guess, like I joined the air force and like wanted to be a pilot for, for the longest time, mostly on account of the inspiration of that movie. And so I heard they're making a sequel to it and I'm, I'm pretty excited. It's mandatory to listen to danger zone by Kenny Loggins as well. If you're flying into a war zone now, isn't it? I've heard uh, that because you were in the Air Force, <laughs> weren't you? <laughs> yeah. I never did anything like that, but uh, uh, I, I don't see why not. <laughs> All right. Question four. Your life's being made into a montage. I feel like we know the answer already, but your life's being made into a montage. You get to choose the music it's set to. What song do you pick? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be... Uh, Gosh, I don't know, man. That that's a really hard question. Uh, I, I it's got to be 
realistically something boring uh, because <laughs> oh, uh, come on <laughs> Come now, Mike. Come on. My, my day to day is spoken to more boring. Yeah, you're not that boring. <laughs> my day to day is is really repetitive. So, I mean, I mean, even training wise, I do the same training week over and over again. So it's got to be it's got to be something that's really repetitive. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you could just find like a bagpipe <laughs> drone or something. Just yeah. <laughs> there you go. So See, it's just like some copyright free ambient music and just <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Like uh uh pull us full scale back into emerging strategies. So one of the guys that um taught a lot of the concepts that you know has become emerging strategies for me was uh Derek Evely. And uh he talks about the repeating microcycle like he says it's like Chinese water torture. It's drip, 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 drip. And you may change the pattern. So it's drip, drop, drip, drop, drip, drop. And, and I think that's kind of interesting. And that's a, at least from a training standpoint, uh, that's musical. <laughs> drip drop sounds a lot like TikTok by Kesha. So we'll take that as your final answer. Put man, it spreadsheet for the website, Will. Yeah, I know, oh. man. This if this is a binding answer, jeez. <laughs> yeah, we really stitched you up there, um, yeah. Mike. I've really enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for everybody who's listening and wants to follow you or read your writings or get in touch with you for coaching, where can they look? We're probably most active on Instagram and YouTube these days. Uh, I am Mike Tushir on Instagram and then you can follow reactive training systems as well. And it's reactive training systems on YouTube. Uh, we also have a website reactive training systems.com and something that we kind of only touched on on the periphery is that we've got a free training log application on the website and uh, it's hundred percent free to use for anybody that wants to use it. You just go to reactive training systems.com. You log in and click on apps and you're there. Uh, you can log your training. Uh, you can run these block reviews that I was talking about earlier, uh, the meta block reviews and stuff like that. And the whole intent behind it is to help you make better decisions in your training. Uh, so we'll help you calculate uh, target weights for your training sessions. We'll help you understand uh, what training you're responding best to and, and how to optimize your training uh, for future training blocks and things like that. So uh, for anybody who wants to jump on that, that's on reactive training systems.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm Will Berkman. For those of you who want to find me on Instagram, Mike included, that's at <laughs> w.berkmanpt. And I'm Alex at alexhays underscore process. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.